The following lecture was delivered at the 12th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson will now present his lecture, The Lubavitcher Rebbe's Positivity Bias. Let's start off with one of my favorite jokes of a fellow who heard that all of Jewish wisdom is contained in the Talmud. And so he goes and seeks out a rabbi, and he asks the rabbi, can you teach me how to think in Talmudic terms? And the rabbi tells this fellow who wasn't Jewish, unfortunately, you are endowed with what is called in Yiddish a goyish cup, which means you don't have the nuanced capacity to understand the Talmud in the way of the Jewish tradition. The fellow says, listen, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but try me. So the rabbi says, okay, here goes. If two people come through a chimney and one person comes out with his face clean, the other with his face dirty, which of the two goes to wash his face? He says, Rabbi, it's simple. The guy with the face that's dirty goes to wash his face. The guy whose face is clean doesn't need to wash his face. The rabbi says, I told you, you have what's called the Gayashikov. But you see, the guy who comes down with his face is dirty, looks at the guy whose face is clean, thinks he's clean, doesn't wash his face. The guy whose face is clean, looks at the guy whose face is dirty, thinks he's dirty, goes to wash his face. The guy says, listen, try me again, Rabbi. He says, okay, two guys come through a chimney. One guy comes out with his face dirty, the other with his face clean. Which of the two goes to wash his face? He says, ah, Rabbi. The guy whose face is dirty looks at the guy whose face is clean, thinks he's clean, doesn't wash his face. The guy whose face is clean looks at the guy whose face is dirty, thinks he's dirty, goes to wash his face. The rabbi says, oh, You see, the guy whose face is dirty looks in the mirror, sees he's dirty, doesn't, goes to wash his face. The guy whose face is clean looks in the mirror, sees his face is clean. No need to wash his face. The fellow says, Rabbi, one more try. He says, okay, here goes. Two guys come through a chimney. One guy comes out with his face clean, the other with his face dirty. Which of the two goes to wash his face? The fellow says, ah, it depends. If they have a mirror, the guy whose face is clean looks in the mirror, sees he's clean, doesn't wash his face. The guy whose face is dirty looks in the mirror, sees his face is dirty, washes his face. If they don't have a mirror, however, the guy whose face is clean looks, the guy whose face is dirty, thinks he's dirty, washes his face. The guy whose face is clean looks, the guy whose face is dirty. The rabbi says, ah, goyeshekop. Tell me something, the rabbi says. If two guys come through the same chimney, how does one guy come out with his face dirty and the other with his face clean? End of joke. But what I'd like to propose in the next few minutes is that it is possible, in fact, for two people to go down the very same chimney and for one to emerge clean and for the other to emerge dirty. And that is... If one of them enters the chimney clean and the other enters the chimney dirty. In other words, two people could undergo the very same life experience and emerge differently, depending on their perspective before they encountered that identical scenario. And similarly, depending on our disposition and worldview, we can observe, we can analyze the very same data and yet come up with very different, even opposite conclusions. Here's a thought exercise. Can anyone think of a biblical example where two groups of people were tasked with an identical assignment and upon completion, they arrive at opposite conclusions? Exactly. I refer, of course, to the reconnaissance mission initiated by Moshe in the book of Numbers where 12 men are sent into Canaan to ascertain its strengths and weaknesses and come back, in fact, with polar opposite reports. Let us turn to text one through three, and it is there that you find these radically different viewpoints. In the first case, we have the mission. The Lord speaks to Moshe saying, send for yourself men who will scout the land. In the second text, we have the report of 10 of the 12 tribes, excuse me, spies. And what do they say? They come back and they say, we are unable to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Rashi adds something quite fascinating, intriguing, even disturbing. The Hebrew word for stronger than we, mimenu, with different vowels can read mimeno, which means stronger than him, referring to God. In other words, not only did they lose faith in themselves, they came back saying, God cannot 
help us through this one. They lost faith in God too. Uh, in text 3, we have Caleb and Yeshua who are counter-arguing. And what do they say? They say the land we pass through is an exceedingly good land. In fact, if the Lord desires us, he will bring us to this land. And here is the nuanced response, right, to their claim that God can't do it. And then they say, as opposed to your complaint or your position that that land will devour us, what do they say? They are as our bread. It is we who can devour them. Rashi says, on the double language, we can surely go up even to heaven. If he were to tell us, make ladders and go up there, we would succeed in that as well. What do we have? We have 12 people, seemingly given the same task, and yet breaking into two groups, one of whom come back with a glowing report of a land flowing with milk and honey, easily accessible, easily conquerable, and another group saying, dismally, impossible, never going to happen. Not only do we lack the capacity, even God, as it were, lacks the capacity to facilitate this transition. And so, of course, the question is, did these 12 men scout the same land? Did they stay at the same hotel? Were they given the same tour guide? Were they shown the same sites? How could their conclusions differ so sharply? with one group assuring the Jewish people of its success and the other of its failure. And so what I'd like to propose is that if we look beneath the surface, we will find the answer to this in the biases these two groups brought with them when they entered the land in the first instance. Let's look at text 4, and it is here that we encounter a negativity bias, as I would call it, on the part of 10 of the 12 men. The Torah says, They went and they came to Moshe and Aaron. And they brought back a report to the congregation. Rashi says, why does it say they went and they came? What is meant by they went? It says already that they returned. This is to compare their going with their coming. Here are the key words. Just as their return was with evil intent, so was their departure on the journey with evil intent. Clearly, 10 of the 12 were not neutral, were not impartial but had already drawn a conclusion before even entering the land, one that was negative and one that would herald failure. Conversely, were the other two completely neutral? Were Caleb and Joshua open-minded? I'd like to propose they weren't either. In fact, we have a support for this in the text. Here is what the Torah has to say about something Moshe does just before sending off Joshua, who at the time was called Hosea rather than Yehoshua, says the verse, it was then that Moshe renames Hosea Yehoshua, adding the letter Yud, which is, of course, the first letter of God's name. In the hope, says Rashi, he prayed on his behalf, may God save you from the counsel of the spies. Moshe was already aware that 10 of the 12 had a negative agenda. And so in order to counter that particular agenda, Moshe introduces the letter Yud, metaphorically, extra divine power and courage, to ensure that Joshua not be affected by that negativity bias. In other words, Joshua was aware of that negativity bias, and he saw himself as the bulwark, as the counterpoint. And here we find, similarly, in text 6, it says, they went up in the south, but then it says, he came to Hebron. They or he, the group or an individual. Says Rashi, and he came to Hebron. Kalev went there alone to prostrate himself on the graves of the patriarchs in prayer. He was the first to go to a gravesite of a tzaddik, of his ancestors, to pray. What was he praying for? Why did he break from the group? Why does he go alone? This is what he prayed for, that he not be enticed by his colleagues to be part of their council. Kalev, we are quite clear, similarly was aware of that negativity bias, and therefore he wanted to refill his spiritual tank of courage and conviction so that he not be impacted by that negativity bias. And therefore, these two come back, not just with impartial, cool-headed analysis, but rather saying, as we saw earlier in the text, even should God tell us to build ladders and climb to the heavens, this too we can do. Those are not the words of rational, collected individuals reporting on the facts. Reminds me of the saying, I made up my mind, so don't confuse me with the fact. You see, all 12 men went through the very same chimney. And yet 10 come out dirty, 
were negative and the other two emerged clean and positive. And this is because the 10 went in dirty, so to speak, and the other two entered clean. Let me share with you a beautiful story that took place with a man named Charlie Roth. During a yechidus, a private audience with the Rebbe, a bureau chief of a national Jewish newspaper extolled his periodical. Charlie says to the Rebbe, there is nothing we would not report, even if it meant portraying the Jewish community negatively. He says, journalism is journalism. When it comes to honest reporting, you do not protect your brother and sister. Concluding, he says, our publication is independent and completely objective. The Rebbe responded pointedly, independent perhaps, but objective? There is no such thing. It is humanly impossible to be completely objective. Every person has a bias of some kind. And I understand the Rebbe's words to mean that one can write without an agenda, but not without a bias. For it isn't humanly possible not to bring one's personality, one's experiences, and one's beliefs to bear on one's worldview. The question in life then is this, what are your biases? And how are we each programmed to see the world? And it follows then that the overarching area of our focus in life should be to assess and to set or reset our biases. For after all, so much of our attitude to life is colored by the lenses we wear when viewing the world around us. And to my mind, this will be the focus of this talk, the greatest gift that the Lubavitch Rebbe gave our world and the Jewish community is what I would refer to as a positivity bias. It was not a detail. It was the essence from which his entire Weltanschauung derived. From his view on the world, to humanity, to history, through to his approach to adversity and challenges, his theology, his worldview were permeated by an insistence that beneath the facade of every human being, every situation, every aspect of reality and the human condition lies a core goodness waiting to be revealed. And in the next few minutes, I'd like to share with you 23 or four quick examples of his positivity bias in the hope that it will rub off on yours. And after each story, I'll share with you a one-line takeaway or a mantra that embodies that particular teaching of the Rebbe, and I would invite you to write them down on the back page of this particular handout. There are 25 lines. We'll see how far we go. But in this way, by the time we conclude this class, you will walk out with 25 or so takeaways from the Rebbe's positivity bias. Let's begin with the first story. A professor once complained to the Rebbe about human nature. From my encounters, he says, I have noticed that people can seem nice, they can seem charming at the outset, they may express concern for you, show interest in your life, and even claim to love you. But if one digs a little deeper than that outer surface, at their core, everyone is exactly the same, self-absorbed and interested only in their own well-being. Why is this the nature of mankind? The Rebbe responded, responded with a parable. When one walks on the street, things look elegant and appealing. Tall, flowery trees, fancy homes, paved roads, and expensive cars. But if one were to take a shovel and begin digging beneath that surface, one would discover dirt, nothing like the beautiful but deceptive world above ground. At this point, the professor was nodding his head in agreement. The Rebbe seemed to be making his point exactly. And then the Rebbe continues, but if he weren't to give up and would continue digging even deeper, he would eventually encounter precious minerals and diamonds. The Torah says that man was created in the image of God. And so the takeaway of this particular lesson is, if you dig deep enough, you can find the divine in everyone. We continue to the second story. A Torah scholar once presented the Rebbe with the following question. The Talmud states, that even the sinners of Israel are filled with mitzvot, good deeds, like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. He asks the Rebbe, isn't that statement oxymoronic and contradictory? For if someone is truly Poshe Yisrael, a sinner in Israel, 
How can the Talmud say that he or she is filled with mitzvot, good deeds, like a pomegranate is filled with, good, with seeds? The Rebbe responded, I have learned the same passage, and I have the opposite question. For if the Jew we speak of is truly filled with mitzvot and good deeds, like a pomegranate is filled with seeds, how can the Talmud refer to them as poshe Yisrael, as sinners in Israel? Two scholars looking at the same text, deriving at very different conclusions. What we see depends largely on what we look for. That's the second takeaway. What we see depends mainly on what we look for. I think the Rebbe's debate with this individual was not about how many or little mitzvot the individual has. It was not a percentage discussion. Rather, it was a question of essence. All of us have areas of strengths and weaknesses. We have iniquities. We do get distracted. We do fall from time to time. The question is, what defines our essence and what is superimposed? What is superficial? What is the facade, the veneer, rather than the core? This fellow looked at Jewish people who seemed lapsed or not observant or particularly uh, or engaged in hedonistic activity and says, that's who they are. And so the fact that from time to time they do a mitzvah does not reflect their essence. That's a fluke. That's an exception to the norm. Says the Rebbe, the exact opposite. Even if the majority of the time one finds themselves engaged in less than spiritual activity, that does not reflect their essence. Their essence is pure. Their essence is godly. Their essence is divine. I want to show with you, show, share with you a video, a live demonstration of the Rebbe processing one of the most infamous sinners of Israel, one of the most infamous Jews in Jewish history through his prism of redemptiveness and positivity. The talking grasser is the king grasser in the field. Was it the Lord given me sassless object? Has the God with Nitkinid? The Lord's of the Gemori was a cigarette, is a rangy gang in my tangy nomen in base amigo. Is the Lord a cigarette nomen top halamis bear and not gesorg lucus lucus as echel mamenem shall be slow when they meet the ambassador. Was for another hot his affair became monthly for me, or the dosso was his clap with a sandal of Miss Bay. Was it not the Schwarze Bedover, or do is a dwarfidus? Er sorgt in Possek in Spanje, ki erak eschem your dietim, you call gay horrors, alkane, efke, da lechem is a venege. Or dos was me mon bayin. Und es wird angerufen mit der Dalle der Hochschule, mit allen Protein. Aber bei ihm ist es Israel. Und als jeder sein Kerl ist das Negei, Nasmus und Husse, ist auf der Mäbischen Allee. Ein jüdischer Mädel, was er mir und das Rachman mit Islam, wenn es alles angeht, ist der Mäbischen Negei, was er sie wird sich finden, als sie der Sende misweht. Und dort war es mit der Gräßkeit von der jüdischen Nischung. 
This is one of the most incredible examples of the Rebbe's tireless search for the good in everyone. Here the Rebbe revisits one of the most painful periods in Jewish history and redeems one of the most infamous Jews to have ever lived, a woman who converted out of the faith to a notorious anti-Semite, no less, who participated in the destruction and the desecration of Judaism's holiest site. And yet, when analyzed through the Rebbe's positivity bias, she becomes a source of instruction and, yes, inspiration. Indeed, the Rebbe is brought to tears when he hears what only the Lubavitcher Rebbe could hear in the words of a wayward Jew who crossed every single cardinal line. The quintessential divine spark of a Jewish girl crying in pain for her brothers and sisters who were being brutalized and were being degraded. So the takeaway line from this particular passage is even the sinners of Israel are filled with mitzvot like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. Even the sinners of Israel are filled with mitzvot like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. In the next story, we encounter a man who once told the Rebbe that he feels like a hypocrite going to Shul on Yom Kippur because he didn't go the rest of the year. 
You know what the Rebbe responds? He says that because the natural place for a Jew is in the shul, you're not a hypocrite when you go to shul on Yom Kippur. You are a hypocrite when you don't go to shul the rest of the year. What is the essence and what is the superimposed? If we can recognize that divine essence, we can actually change the way in which we interact with everyone. We move on to the next idea. So the, the one-liner at the end of that is, beneath the id lies the yid. Beneath the id, Freud's id, lies the yid. In the next story, we find that the Rebbe extended this redemptive, redemptive approach not just to the essence of every Jew or human being, but to every aspect of the human condition, including those seen by others as destructive and irredeemable. Here's an example. In the 60s, when the Jewish establishment was shocked by the youth rebellion, and they said, students, unrest, hippies, this is a lost generation. The Rebbe declared, the apathetic ice of America is finally beginning to thaw. Young people now realize they need not conform to society's norms. This is how the Rebbe defined the essence of that very controversial zeitgeist. In fact, the Rebbe viewed all of youth similarly, and he said that the rebellion of young people is not a crime. On the contrary, it is the fire of their soul that refuses to conform, that is dissatisfied with the status quo, that cries out, I want to change the world, but is frustrated with not knowing how. And so the takeaway of this particular idea is that rebellion is often fueled by the desire for positive change. Beyond the general desire of people for positive change, the Rebbe discerned in every Jew the desire for growth and an intrinsic yearning to connect and engage with his or her Jewishness. Accordingly, the Rebbe taught that Judaism is not an all-or-nothing proposition, but that every single mitzvah is valuable unto itself. There was a Jew who was struggling to let go of work on Shabbat, and he sought encouragement from the Rebbe. The Rebbe told him, if for whatever reason you find yourself going to work on Shabbos, make an effort to leave for work one minute late. If ever you find yourself heading to work again on Shabbos, add another minute in honor of Shabbos. And so the takeaway of this story is, you may not be able to do everything, but you can always do something. And one of the great embodiments of this encouraging approach were those mitzvah mobile homes you may have encountered in Chabad jargon. We call it mitzvah tanks. And the aim of these portable synagogues on wheels was to bring the beauty of Judaism to those who, for whatever reason, had not sought it out on their own. In response to the criticism of those who discounted those mitzvahs on the go, saying that there was no long-term strategy or benefit to those one-off spiritual encounters, or hit and runs. The Rebbe taught, a mitzvah is not a means to an end, but is an end unto itself. How many lives were touched and how many Jewish journeys were triggered by the hundreds of thousands of chance encounters between the Rebbe's students and random strangers. The Rebbe taught that a single mitzvah forges a connection with the divine which is infinite and has the power to ignite the fire in each of our souls. And so the line from this particular teaching is, a mitzvah is not a means to an end, but is an end unto itself. Here, as in the following story, the Rebbe encouraged celebrating the things people are doing rather than focusing on what they are not. A person who took self-improvement seriously once told the Rebbe, it's not fair. The things I find so difficult to change in myself come so naturally to others. And the Rebbe said to him, to the observer, two people standing on the same rung of a ladder might seem to be at the very same place, but they are not. For one of them is on his way down, and the other one is on his way up. And so here the one-line teaching is, what matters most is not where you are, but where you are going. In the next story, the Rebbe extends this idea that imperfection should not hold you back, not only to personal growth, but to helping others grow despite your own deficiencies. Herb Brin met with the Rebbe after becoming editor of the LA-based Jewish newspaper, Heritage. Rebbe, he says, I recently became editor of a Jewish publication. 
The problem is I know very little about my people and heritage. Do I have the right to make sensitive editorial judgments as I do not understand Hebrew? My Jewish education was truncated, and I only know fragments of Yiddish. The Rebbe stood up and pulled out his wallet. The Rebbe asked him, how much do you charge for a subscription to Heritage? He says $3.50, with surprise. The Rebbe takes out $3.50, gives Herb the money, and he says, looking him in the eye, do you have the right to withhold from people that which you do know? And so the teaching here is, if you only know the letter Aleph, teach Aleph. In another story, a student approached the Rebbe in the middle of a farbrengen to say l'chaim, and the Rebbe asked him whether he was involved in encouraging others to put on tefillin. And he says, but Rebbe, I myself don't lay tefillin every day. And the Rebbe said with a smile, why is that their fault? <laughs> you don't have to be perfect in order to help others perfect themselves. That's that teaching. You don't have to be perfect in order to help others perfect themselves. A really beautiful story that comes to mind is an encounter the Rebbe had with Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, who has shared a very close connection with the Rebbe. And during a Yechidus, towards the end, the Rebbe turns to Menachem and he says, Menachem, could you do me a personal favor? And Mr. Begin says, for the Rebbe, anything. The Rebbe said, I received a letter from a family in Paris from the parents of a girl who was dating someone who wasn't Jewish, and she was planning to marry them. In passing in the letter, the parents mentioned that their daughter is a huge fan of Menachem Begin. The Rebbe says to Menachem, would you do me a personal favor and stop off in Paris on the way to Israel and have a word with this girl? Menachem agreed, and he did that. And he influenced her to change the course of her life. She ended, marrying, ended up marrying a Jewish person and having a beautiful Jewish family. Now. Menachem Begin was an incredible individual. <laughs> he was a proud, proud Jew, but he wouldn't be what we would refer to as the typical Chabad Shaliach. Right? He wasn't the poster boy for Jewish continuity per se, and yet the Rebbe sees in him a certain point of influence by divine providence and says, utilize that to impact someone else. So the teaching here is you don't have to be perfect in order to help others perfect themselves. In the next story, we find that in the Rebbe's books, not only should imperfection not hold you back, imperfection and struggle themselves can be seen as a virtue, not a vice. In a private audience with the Rebbe, a man expressed deep frustration about his struggle with mitzvah observance. Rabbi, he says, I find that no matter how many mitzvot I perform, I remain unchanged and I continue to sin. I feel like I'm wasting my time and energy and that there is no point in trying anymore. The Rebbe asked, why is it that a masterful painting sells for far more than an award-winning photograph? One would expect the opposite to be true, because a photograph captures reality more accurately than does a painting, which is only a good imitation at best, says the man. Well, even the greatest photographer takes a picture, but it only takes a few seconds, and it takes relatively little effort. A painter, on the other hand, invests months and years of his life, his heart, his soul, his blood, his energy, his mind space. And this is what makes it valuable. Excellent, the Rebbe says. You see, this is precisely my point. The heavenly angels are created without negative impulses or desires. And therefore, their spirit reflects the purity of the divine with an accuracy unlike any other. Like a photograph. They are the closest thing to depicting the divine reality. But because they lack the urge to sin, they have no challenges. They never struggle. The human being, however, was created with negative inclinations and impulses, which he must battle constantly. His strenuous service, although imperfect in appearance, is invaluable in the eyes of God. And so the teaching here is that in spiritual geography, the journey itself is the destination. On the theme of struggles, here's another story that can help redefine the way we see and approach the struggles in our lives, be it physical, spiritual, moral, or otherwise. 
A man once came to the Rebbe with the following predicament. I have started to become more Torah observant, but I am deeply in love with someone forbidden to me by the Torah. Bracing himself for a rebuke and expecting to be told how grave a transgression his relationship was. Imagine his shock when the Rebbe responded softly with three words. I envy you. The young man did not quite grasp the meaning. The Rebbe, he thought, who was on the highest of spiritual levels, is envious of me, the fellow who just told him about an illicit relationship. The Rebbe continued, each person is given a ladder in life to climb. The ladders represent life's challenges and difficult choices, and the tests you face are like ladders that can elevate you to greater heights. Hence, the greater the challenge, the higher the ladder. God has given you this difficult test because he believes you can overcome it and has endowed you with the ability to do so. Few are presented a ladder as challenging as yours. Don't you see then why I envy you? And here the Rebbe presents one of the axioms of his motivational theology. A challenge is God's way of telling you you're ready for something greater. Don't resent it. Embrace it. So the teaching here is a challenge is God's way of telling you you are ready for something greater. And in the following video, we see how the Rebbe extends this thinking to all challenges, including physical disabilities as well. Mr. Yosef Lautenberg was injured in the battle for Jerusalem during the War of Independence in 1948. He was among the founders of the IDF Disabled Veterans Organization and the founder of Beit Halochem, a rehabilitation facility for wounded soldiers. He led the Israeli delegation, made up in large part by injured IDF veterans, to the 1976 Paralympics in Toronto. Mr. Lautenberg had an idea to bring the group to New York to visit with the Rebbe. הוא סיים את הדרשה, הרבי ירד אלינו, דבר שאמרו לי שזה דבר שהוא לא מקובל. הוא ירד אלינו, לחץ את ידי כולם, ידי כל המשלחת, הוא לחץ את ידי. זה היה מין חיזיון שקשה לתאר אותו. היינו שם לפחות שעה, יותר אולי. חשנו שהאיש... ידו רבו על הכובד הגודל שנסכבדתי על ידי הביקור שלכם ויהי רוצין שרבס פעומים תצליחו להובי שמחו ואיר ויעדוס בכל מוקים שתבקרו הם בחוץ לאורץ ולאחרי זה גם כן בארץ הקדש Yeah. 
Dr. David Lukens is chair of the political science department at Toro College. For 20 years, he served on the staff of U.S. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. My two best stories were the Rebbe and public policy, and I used them in class. I actually used them, I used the first one I used in class in American politics as an example. There was a congress, there was a woman in Brooklyn, college teacher, angry black woman named Shirley Chisholm. She got elected to the United States Congress in the mid-60s. She was a fiery speaker. She was considered a black power advocate. Whites were scared silly of her. And she was the first black woman ever elected to the United States Congress, and she was a bomb thrower. So the, uh, the white Southern racists that ran the U.S. House of Representatives from the South said, we'll teach this blank a, a, a lesson. And they assigned her to the Agricultural Committee of the House of Representatives. It was a great galechter. It was a great joke. I still remember the New York Times front page article said, does a tree grow in Brooklyn? Question mark. They said, you know, the, the chairman, they've appointed Shirley Chisholm, not to housing, which she requested, not to a committee on poverty, but the Agriculture Committee. And she, when she retired from the House, I was there when she told the following story. She said she was very depressed, very upset, and didn't know what to do. She got a phone call. The Lubavitcher rabbi wants to see you. And of course, she, she was the congresswoman from Crown Heights. She had helped win the election, the primary, with the strong support of Lubavitch. She had some very close relationship with people in the Crown Heights community. And she came to see the rabbi. She as he told the story, she had seen him once before when he had refused to give her, endorse her. But then he said, everyone voted for me, so I guess he did something. She was very cute about that. She said, but then she came to see him the second time, and he sat down and he said, I know you're very upset. She says, I am upset. I'm insulted. What should I do? And he said, what a blessing God's given you. This country has so much surplus food, and there's so many hungry people, and you can use this gift that God's given you to feed hungry people. Find a creative way to do it. And she says the first day she came to Washington, she met a young congressman who's now a world-famous figure, Robert Dole from Kansas. And they started talking. And he said, you know, we are farmers of all this extra food. We don't know what to do with it. She said, one second, the rabbi. And what we call WIC and food stamps largely expanded. It was a tiny pilot program before the whole existing food stamps program at the Agriculture Committee of the United States Congress. And Shirley Chisholm said in front of everyone there in Washington, she said, I owe this because a rabbi who was an optimist taught me optimism, taught me that what God gives, what, what you may think is a challenge is a gift from God. She said, if poor children, babies, I heard her say this, she said, poor babies have milk, if poor children, children have food, it's because the, this rabbi in Crown Heights had vision. What an amazing story. Here the rabbi extends his positivity of bias to a seeming stranger, a person not within the community per se, but somebody who went through a major setback and the Rebbe teaches that this setback, in fact, can be a springboard for tremendous growth and expansion. So where other people saw obstacles, the Rebbe saw opportunities. That's the next teaching. Obstacles are, in essence, opportunities. To the Rebbe, every twist and turn in our life has meaning. And it's for us to decipher and to develop that meaning. I'm reminded of a story I shared yesterday a moving example of this principle is the story of a chassid who was here with us this weekend, Simon Jacobson, who has given many beautiful talks. His father, Gershon Ber Jacobson, was hospitalized before the high holidays. And Simon went to see the Rebbe before Yom Kippur to receive a piece of lekach, of honey cake, per Jewish custom. Smiling, the Rebbe gives him a piece for his father and says, may he have a kesiva v'chassim a sweet happy new year. And then the Rebbe adds the following point. He said earnestly, tell your father that when he finishes the mission for which he was sent to the hospital, God will set him free. Inspired by the Rebbe's message, relayed by his son, the man proceeded to initiate conversations with his doctors and his fellow patients regarding their spiritual well-being, some of which actually triggered complete journeys of spirituality, as he was later to find out. And the day after Yom Kippur, the Rebbe sent his personal secretary to Gershon Bar Jacobson, to visit the man in the hospital, and his first question was, the Rebbe wants to know, 
Have you completed your mission yet? And so to the Rebbe, every crisis contains a calling. And that's the line from this teaching. Every crisis contains a calling. And here the Rebbe echoes the words of his spiritual grandfather, the founder of Hasidism in general, the Baal Shem Tov, who taught that the Hebrew word for calamity, catastrophe, is tsara. But when you rearrange those letters, it spells the Hebrew word for window, tsohar. Because in fact, every obstacle contains an opportunity. Every crisis contains a calling. And indeed, in the Rebbe's own personal life, he manages to redeem the greatest source of pain and sorrow in the world, those twin forces of loss and tragedy. And he turns them into windows of opportunity and growth. In his own life, the Rebbe utilized every personal loss as an impetus for greater output and for greater impact. Energy is never lost, he taught. And so the energy of pain cannot leave us unless we channel it into something constructive. When his father passed away, he established a kolel for the elderly dedicated to his father's memory. Old men and women were given a new lease of life as a result of the personal loss of life that the Rebbe had recently suffered. And when his mother passed away, the Rebbe dedicated a new series of discourses outlining a novel methodology in the study of Rashi to her memory. And when his wife of 60 years, Rebbe Tzinchaya Mushka of blessed memory, passes away, the Rebbe honors her life by starting an international birthday campaign celebrating the beginning of life, giving a whole new level of significance to one's Jewish birthday. Here, as in many instances, the Rebbe taught that the best way to commemorate death is to celebrate life. That's the line of this teaching. The best way to commemorate death is to celebrate life. Similarly, during a private audience with the Rebbe in the early 1950s, an influential leader of the Jewish Federation of North America proposed that all Jewish families set up an empty chair at their Passover Seder to perpetuate the memory of the millions tragically killed in the Holocaust. The Rebbe responds, Your idea is a nice one, but with all due respect, I would offer the following suggestion. Instead of leaving those chairs empty, let us fill that chair with an extra guest with someone who would not otherwise participate in the Seder. Invite a Jew who does not know about the Seder, and this would be a true living legacy for all of those who tragically passed. The way to commemorate death is to celebrate life. Another hallmark of the Rebbe's teaching was that in his view, the best way to transmit Judaism to the next generation was by teaching them how Jews should live rather than how they once died. By de-emphasizing the centrality of the Holocaust and Jewish suffering to Jewish identity, the Rebbe hoped to change the soundtrack of Jewish history from a haunting melody into a resounding victory march. I think the following story told in a video makes this point beautifully. Rabbi Zalman Posner was a young yeshiva student when the Rebbe arrived to America in 1941. What was possibly the first event that he was involved with that indicated that he was an unusual person happened shortly after he arrived. And uh, it happened that I was the only one really who knew what was going on because of you know, what happened was the Rebbe said when we were ready to go to Tashlich, the first Rosh Hashanah, mm -hmm. and uh, so I don't know how many were there, 50, 100 people, I have no idea, I was 13 years old. Uh, that could have been in 19... 41. He came in the spring, and this was Rosh Hashanah, a few right. months later. Mm -hmm. And everybody's ready to go down Eastern Parkway, right. and uh, he remarked that that's not the way to go to Tashlich. You should go in two lines. Then he paused, and then he said, and sing. So a parade down Eastern Parkway was unheard of. It was never any such thing, parading on Eastern Parkway, oh. and then singing in the street. And I said I was a kid, right. and uh, you get the picture, all those windows there in the high buildings, yes. and they're giving, looking, who they look at, obviously, to me. Right. Who else would they be looking at? And I found out that when you really pray with intensity, God hears your prayer. Mm -hmm. And I was praying, get me out of this. I uh -huh. can't stand this. And the following year, an older chosid that uh, he had been in our house a lot before the war and all, 
and uh, he told me he can't walk with everybody else. They walk too fast. He says, I want you to stay with me. Mm -hmm. So I acknowledged to God that he really heard my prayer and answered it. We went to Tashlich, or about a half a block or so, behind everybody, mm -hmm. and uh, went back. They led us in a different way, on a different street, not Eastern Parkway, and uh, you could see ahead of us there was an apartment house set back from the street and filled with uh, women and children and boys and girls and father, laymen, right. men, men. One fella caught my eyes, the, the way he was dressed, very well dressed, right? but no yarmulkir, no hat, nothing, bareheaded. And as we walked by, the, everybody else was about a half a block ahead of us, he came over and grabbed me by the arm and he said, why are they singing, why are they singing? And I, I, I started stammering and stuttering. Then he says, do you know? He says, deep down here I have a spark. And when I heard these people going down the street singing, hooray, I'm a Jew, hooray, I'm a Jew, that spark burst into a flame and he walked away. That's not how we go to Tashlich. We go with two lines and we sing. And this reminds me of one of my favorite stories, one recounted in Elie Wiesel's second novel, The Gates of the Forest, a story divided into four seasons, the last of which, Winter, is a vivid account of a meeting he had with the Rebbe. The account is grueling and painfully vulnerable. Auschwitz, of course, is the pivotal question of the conversation. And at the end of this soul-searching session with the Rebbe, he comes to confess why he really came to see the Rebbe. He says to the Rebbe, make me able to cry. In his book, Night, Wiesel recalls how the death of his father in Buchenwald had traumatized his capacity for tears. The light of his world was extinguished, he writes, but I did not cry, and this is what causes me the most grief, this inability to cry. The fountainhead of his tears had dried up, and so Wiesel pleads with the Rebbe, make me able to cry. The Rebbe shook his head and said softly, Eli, teaching you to cry is not enough. Instead, I shall teach you to sing. There is a video, we don't have time for it, perhaps at the end you can see it, of Elie Wiesel singing Animamen. It is heart-wrenchingly beautiful and hauntingly inspiring. And teach the Jewish people how to sing the Rebbe did like no one before him. As the following video, video vividly, dis, dis, vividly displays, there are certain things you have to see in order to experience them properly. to that. I'm, that was a technical failure. But you get the idea. The Rebbe in his 80s, in his 90s, is waving his hands like a child, like someone who has all the energy in the world. It brings to mind that Yiddish song, As the Rebbe tanced, tanced alecha sidim. And in this way, the Rebbe's dancing embodies the renewed sense of joy that he brought to Jewish life, to his community, and way beyond. The Rebbe changed the rule book on Jewish motivation. Instead of guilt, he emphasized and embodied joy. Echoing the words of Moshe in his last will to the Jewish people, who said, and now write for yourselves this song and teach it to the children of Israel. Place it in their mouths so that they sing it for me. The Rebbe taught that for Judaism to thrive, not just survive, it needs to be sung, not sermonized. There's a beautiful story where a father comes to the Rebbe and says, my children are lapsing in their Yiddishkeit. And in the middle of the conversation, he sighs and says an old Yiddish refrain, is to how difficult is it to be a Jew? And the Rebbe stopped him and said, wait a second, do you say that often? And he said, life is challenging. And so, yes, I do. The Rebbe says, and you wonder why your children want nothing to do with Judaism? Change the refrain to another old Yiddish saying, es is to how good and pleasurable it is to be Jewish and you will see dramatically different results. 
And in this story, we find that in addition to associating Judaism with joy, the Rebbe teaches us the impact of words in shaping our mindset and environment. And this is another extraordinary expression of the Rebbe's emphasis on positivity, the great lengths he went to to use only positive language. For example, he would refrain from saying the Hebrew, English, or Yiddish word for bad, and instead he would say the opposite of good. The Rebbe discouraged the use of the word undertake because it relates to the word undertaker, which alludes to the opposite of life. Similarly, the Rebbe preferred to use the word due date as opposed to deadline because deadline connotes death while due date heralds birth. To the director of a large Israeli hospital, the Rebbe said, let's change the name, the Hebrew classic word for hospital, Bet Cholim, a house of sickness, and turn it into Bet Refuah, a house of healing. In this way, he wanted to focus their minds on the solution rather than the problem. And it might seem insignificant or minor, but changing one's speech influences one's thinking. And a style of thinking that is positive guarantees a more optimistic frame of mind. The Rebbe once discouraged the use of the word retreat. I heard this from Rabbi Krinsky in a particular context. Because as I understand it, the word retreat implies regression and moving backward. And for the Rebbe, there was only one direction in his playbook. And that was forward, upward, and onward. In a letter that he wrote to Yitzchak ben Svi, the second president of Israel, the Rebbe writes something very personal. From the time that I was a child attending Cheder, and even earlier than that, there began to take form in my mind a vision of the future redemption, the redemption of Israel from its last exile, redemption such as would explicate the suffering of exile. And hence, in the Rebbe's view, our world was getting closer, not further from the messianic era envisioned by the prophets. When singing the famous Animamin, he would omit those words, the af al pi sheyit mahamea, which mean, and even though he may tarry, because for the Rebbe, Mashiach was an imminent reality. When asked if you could choose an era to live in, which would it be? The Rebbe said, the one we are living in now. As often as he could, the Rebbe made it a point to demonstrate that the arc of history is bending forward. And he often emphasized that we are very close to crossing that finish line of history. There is no better time to live in than now. Mashiach is on his way. At this point in my talk, you might say to yourself, well, it may have been easy for the Rebbe to be positive. Perhaps he had an easy life. Or maybe he had a positive and cheery disposition. Well, I'm here to tell you that the opposite was the case. The Rebbe did not have an easy life at all. He lived through the Ukrainian pogroms through the refugee crises, through World War I, a typhus epidemic, the Bolshevik Revolution, the rise of communism, and World War II. His father was exiled to Siberia, and he passed away there. And this haunted the Rebbe for the rest of his life. He once wrote to his father saying, I shall never forgive myself for emigrating from the Soviet Union and leaving you behind. The Rebbe absorbed the pain and the grief of hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps millions, over 40 years of his leadership. And he carried the burden of Jewish continuity on his shoulders, on a personal level. While he blessed so many others with children, he never merited to have his own. And yet the Rebbe made a conscious decision to focus on the positive rather than the negative in his life and the world around him. And as far as optimism and positivity coming easily to the Rebbe is concerned, in a rare and personal disclosure, he once told Rabbi Beryl Yunik the following, I worked on myself to look at things in a positive light, otherwise I simply could not have survived. In a beautiful letter, the Rebbe wrote to somebody who was a chronic complainer. Ever heard of those? The Rebbe says, in everyone's life, there are two paths to see the good or the opposite. How instructive it is that our sages tell us that Adam, the first human being, was an ingrate, even before he was banished from Garden of Eden, literally a paradise. He complained about his circumstances. On the other hand, says the Rebbe, there were Jewish men and women who thanked and blessed the Creator and recited the morning blessings while living through the most horrifying times in the German concentration camps. Ultimately, the Rebbe writes, everyone's circumstances will be somewhere in between these two extremes. Needless to say, my intention is not to imply that anyone deserves suffering, God forbid. My point is to underscore the reality that the type of lives that we live, whether full of satisfaction and meaning or the opposite, depends in large measure 
on our willpower, which dictates whether we will focus on the positive or on the negative. The type of lives that we live, whether full of satisfaction and meaning or the opposite, depends in large measure on our willpower, which dictates whether we will focus on the positive or on the negative. So dwell on what you have rather than on what you lack. So if the Rebbe could develop a positivity bias, I am here to tell you all, myself included, so can we. Training ourselves how to speak positively one word at a time through conditioning ourselves to think positively one thought at a time and through elevating ourselves and preparing the world around us for the coming of Mashiach one day and one mitzvah at a time. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.